0: You might open your Bibles with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 15. We're go- we'll begin there in just a moment. 2 Chronicles 15. Well, a lot of you came back. That's encouraging. And it's good to see so many friends of the church here who are visiting, and we're glad you're here as well. If you happen to be from the community, and you don't regularly worship anywhere, you've lighted on a good spot. And if there's anything that... Uh, I can do uh, to, to speak with you about the lesson or anything of that sort, uh, then we certainly invite that. And I also want to say our entire purpose and business with our lessons today and with what's coming up tomorrow and Tuesday evening, we're trying to reach your heart. And there comes a point where we can study all these things, we can go through these scriptures, we can, you know, craft these appeals to you, but we're open our heart to you. And what we want to ask of you is that if you've been contemplating making some changes, you've been thinking about your soul, and maybe some of the good people here or others have been talking to you, let that work on you. And don't put that off and don't ignore it. And one thing that I want to encourage you to consider as well is that you are among friends. You're not among adversaries here. And if there's something that you need if there's strength that you need, if there are numbers that you need to help you. You'll find that here. And I want you to encourage to, you to think about that. Well, we read from time to time in the story of the divided kingdom that there were periods of the people's history where they realized we have not been doing what's right. And so a king, or sometimes in the case of Jehoiada, a high priest would gather the people together And they would renew their covenant with God. And I want to look at one of these instances in 2 Chronicles chapter 15. Upon the preaching and the message of one of God's prophets, we have here Asa who responds to that. And as we read in 2 Chronicles 15, he gathers the people together such that could come to Jerusalem. And look together with me beginning in verse 10. So they gathered together at Jerusalem in the third month, in the 15th year of the reign of Asa. And they offered to the Lord at that time 700 bulls and 7,000 sheep from the spoil they had brought. Then they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. And whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel was to be put to death, whether small or great, whether man or woman. Then they took an oath before the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting and trumpets and ram's horns, And all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with all their soul. And he was found by them, and the Lord gave them rest all around. The general message that the people were sending with these moments where they would renew the covenant with God was, we have been sinning, but now that stops conclusively And from this moment on, we will serve the Lord with all our heart, soul, might, and strength. And whatever it costs, we are going to make that our priority. And what we're saying today is there comes a time in all of our lives, personally, sometimes as families, and sometimes as churches, where we need to realize we need to wake up. We have not been right with the Lord, and that is now changing. Whatever that's going to look like, we will make it happen. And so what we want to think about this afternoon is there's actually a time that God has set aside for us that's really a fitting and appropriate time for us to renew our covenant, and that's the Lord's Supper. Now, before we go any further, you might be thinking to yourself, hey, that should have been this morning. Well, one thing I think is, yeah, that's appropriate, but it's also good to think about the fact that the Lord's Supper is not just a matter of Sunday. It's an all-the-week kind of thing. Certainly, yes, we have the authority and it is bound upon us, we observe every first day of the week. That's the day that the Lord has us to observe. I understand that. But the Lord's Supper is not just something where, yes, this floats through my mind on Sunday morning, and then it's gone, and then I carry on the rest of the week just trying to be a good person. The Lord's Supper should be an act. It is a ritual in a good sense of the word that should change us and that should stay with us throughout the week. The Lord's Supper and the covenant that we are affirming in that is on my mind all the time. And there are moments in which the fact that I have a covenant with God, it makes me afraid, so I keep my obligation. It reminds me of what I should rejoice in and celebrate, and so that gives me the positive motivation. So what we're doing in this lesson is thinking about the Lord's Supper as an appropriate moment for us inwardly to reflect upon our souls and to commit to making those changes. So what we're going to do then in this lesson is, first of all, we want to go back to the old covenant that God had with the Israelites, and we want to look specifically at the moment that He ratified the covenant with them. And we want to see what we can learn then about the Lord's Supper from that then we'll take a look at a couple of passages in the New Testament that give us some practical things to think about as we are observing that, but also not just on that moment, but for an afternoon like this, or even for Tuesday afternoon or Thursday morning, some important things for us to think about. So let's first turn back in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. Let's go back to Exodus 19. We read beginning in Exodus 19 that God's covenant with Israel had been laid out before them and we find in chapter 19 that he gives the general proposition of what he's offering the people. Look in Exodus 19, at this point they've come through the Red Sea, God has gave them water in the wilderness, he's gave them food in the wilderness, he's fought their battles for them. And now we come here to Mount Sinai, look in chapter 19 verse 4. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagle's wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So we have here a covenant that God is offering to the people there's a sense in which this covenant, number one, is reciprocal, meaning that God has obligations in the covenant, and the people have obligations in the covenant. So what are these obligations? On God's part, He will make them special. He will sanctify them. And with every command that they are keeping, they are allowing, in the performance of every commandment, they are allowing God to put a fingerprint upon their heart and shape their character. That's what God will do. And on the people's perspective, what do they do? If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. So God has offered them the general terms of the covenant. And we see then down to verse 8, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Alright, so now we have what you might say is the handshake. There's the verbal agreement. Now what we have in the intervening chapters of 20, 21, 22 in chapter 23, we have God giving an example of what this covenant will look like. We might say these are sample laws, a cross-section of what it is that God is going to offer and expect of them. But then we come to chapter 24, and we have this covenant then that is ratified. In Exodus chapter 24, let's start reading in verse 3. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Now if you stop there for a moment, picture this scene. Here is this altar. This represents God's presence. The fact that He is present at this ratification. The altar is where heaven meets earth. It is the portal by which God comes down to deal with mankind. And then we have these 12 other pillars that are set up, and this is to represent the presence of the children of Israel. That they are now in the presence of God, and they are standing also to enter into this agreement with Him. But we're not ready yet to confirm it. Keep on reading then in verse 5. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel, who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient." So, these animals are sacrificed, and we've got oxen, and these are being butchered. There is a vast amount of blood. And he collects this in basins. And this copious amount of blood, some of it Moses takes, and in verse 6, he sprinkles it on the altar. For God to come down, and to even use the altar as a place of communing with the people, the altar has to pay a price. It must be cleansed and sanctified. But then it says in verse 7, He took the book again and read it, and they again verbally agreed to keep it. Now look at what's said in verse 8. Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people. Now, that new King James that I'm using uses the word sprinkle, and that sounds like, okay, maybe he's flicking with his fingers, or he might take something like hyssop or some spongy plant, and he flicks it on the people, you know, that, that sounds rather innocuous, but from what I understand, the idea here is more of he sloshed it, or he splashed it on the people. And so, no, he's not getting every single Israelite, but the words mean, I think, what they say. He sprinkled it or sloshed it upon some that would stand as representatives of the nation of Israel. Now, that's one moment in which you might think twice before sitting in one of the front pews, all right? So, he is splashing or sloshing this on them. Now, what's the meaning of this? The altar has blood. They now have blood. And in verse 8, Moses says, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Why the blood? What's the point there? The idea that God is expressing and impressing upon the people is this. You have no right to exist in my presence. You have no right to even inhabit the same universe as I do. You have no standing here. What brings you to the table to deal with me? Why should I have any fellowship with you? You are sinful. You are an affront to my holiness. But I want you. I want to be in your presence. I want you to be with me. And there's nothing you can do about that. I will do something about it. I will accept blood. And so he wants the people to embrace and to internalize this fact that for me to come before God, there must be death. There must be that price paid. And they wear on themselves literally the blood of the covenant. Well, we've got it ratified now with blood. Man has now the standing to appear before God because God made the preparation for that. And now they celebrate. Look in verse 9. Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. What does it mean they went up? Went up where? They went up part of the mountain. Now do you think this would have been just a casual thing for them? This is the very mountain and the slopes of which God said, put up a barrier so that the people do not break through and come up on the mountain. Even if an animal strays and wanders up You're to shoot it through and to execute that animal. Don't touch the mountain upon pain of death. And now Moses, the lawgiver and the shepherd, Aaron the high priest, and Nadab and Abihu, the high priest in waiting. By the way, this makes Leviticus chapter 10 even more poignant. But it's not just them. 70 of the elders of the people now go up on the mountain. And there's the picture that we are now moving from this earthly plane, and God has invited us up to a higher plane where He is, where He lives on the mountain. And it says in verse 10, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under His feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity." There are only a precious few places in the scripture where a human being was given a glimpse of the manifestation of God's glory. And the only other places that I'm aware of where God mentions that his presence is like a sapphire stone laying out under his feet, Ezekiel saw it and John saw it. And when they were in the presence of this great God and his throne and his host, their reaction was to fall on their faces because they were overwhelmed by the presence. And it says then in verse 11, On the nobles of the children of Israel, He did not lay His hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. When it talks about God laying His hand, that's not the comforting kind of a fatherly laying His hand, kind of stroke and comfort. The idea of laying His hand, He did not extend His hand to strike. Now why do we have to hear and read, God did not strike them, God did not smite them down because they had no standing there except they were wearing the blood. And the reason why He spared them because of the blood of the covenant. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. They eat and they drink to celebrate this covenant that they now have with Him. And the idea here is of this meal, this kind of fellowship that they have now with God that is seen and symbolized in this meal. So with that in mind, I us to go over in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. As we're turning over there, let Moses' words ring in your ears, this is the blood of the covenant. Matthew 26, we'll start reading in verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Notice Jesus' words, this is the blood of the new covenant. Jesus was establishing for us that His body and His blood are now symbolizing for us that this is what makes our covenant with God possible. And so we see in the Lord's Supper symbolized for us The role of the sacrifices from the law of Moses. Jesus' sacrifice accomplishes what all the different sacrifices did under the law of Moses. We have the sin or the trespass offering. That would provide atonement, and Jesus' blood provides that for us. He is like our burnt offering in that He gave Himself fully on the cross and poured out His soul unto death. He shows us the path that it takes for us to give our lives, our bodies, a living sacrifice and he is our peace offering. The role of the peace offering in the covenant of Moses was, number one, to petition God for peace, and to thank him and to celebrate that there was peace now between heaven and earth. And so Jesus is also our peace offering. And there's an other element that's thrown in there, and that with the peace offering, the worshiper also partook a part of that animal sacrifice. Our peace offering rose from the dead, and is sitting at the right hand of the power on high. We don't partake literally of that peace offering, but we do eat His flesh and drink His blood in the Lord's Supper of the bread and of the fruit of the vine. And so Jesus now, in His sacrifice, provides that blood of the covenant. And so what we are saying then, when we observe the Lord's Supper, and we take that bread, and we hold that that cup, we are taking part in the new covenant. And we are doing that, and we are renewing our fellowship and our commitment to God. Now, a few things about that, that doesn't mean to say that every time we partake, yeah, we've got to go back and think about Exodus 24, and we've got to think about all of these different passages. Well, no, it doesn't mean that. These are things we can meditate on. But the point that we're trying to make is that one of the purposes that God seeks to establish for us in the Lord's Supper Is a reminder of our relationship with Him and what that relationship costs. That it cost heaven greatly. The best of heaven is what it took to purchase our relationship with Him. And so when we take of the bread and take of the fruit of the vine, what many of us did this morning, what some will do later, what we are doing is affirming that I have a relationship with God, He made it possible. And so, what that means then is, yes, in a sense, it's an obligation. It's a duty that I have to discharge and go through with. But there's also a sense in which the Lord's Supper, if we just view it as an obligation, it's something I just got to do, that has completely missed the point behind it. It is a celebration. It is something that, yes, it has great sorrow mixed with it, but there's also great joy. And that I have been invited up on Mount Zion, heavenly Jerusalem, to partake and eat and drink in the presence of God. Now, if we remember that scene where Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu the 70 elders saw God and they ate and drank in His presence. If I keep that in mind when I'm partaking, I think I'm going to have a lot easier time. Reflecting on what it is that I'm doing and the gravity of that. Now, then, with that in mind, what is the connection? How do we make that then connect with my life throughout the week? There are a couple of passages in 1 Corinthians that I think give us some practical advice. Let's turn over, first of all, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You know, as Paul was writing to the Corinthians, he's writing to a group of people, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles that were there, that were very used to and accustomed to sacrifices. They were used to blood. They were used to bringing their offerings to a temple and to an altar to commune with a deity, as they deemed it. But now their lives have been radically changed, and their outlook has been completely transformed. But that doesn't always show up during the week, day by day. And so here, Paul is teaching them on the responsibilities that entail the Lord's Supper. Look in verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Paul is warning these Christians, when you partake the Lord's Supper, you are affirming a positive relationship with the Lord. But if you do that and you turn around and you have fellowship with idols and you engage in idolatry, you are instead choosing fellowship with Satan. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And we cannot possibly have a relationship with God and with the idols of this world at the same time. And what it comes down to is this. Our covenant with God is not something we say we do, and it's not even so much the act of putting something into our mouth. As sacred as an important that act is, that is a symbol of something that has taken place spiritually within us. We are wearing the blood of the covenant. We ingest the blood of the covenant. We are to internalize what it means to have relationship with God. And that means that we are changed. And if we partake of the Lord's Supper and go away from that unchanged, unmoved, untouched by what we have done, then we have said to God that your covenant is is, is lacking in value to me. And it makes me think of what the Apostle Paul wrote in the second letter to them. As he said to them, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Don't touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let's cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, you might be thinking about that, and you think, well, I don't worship idols, I don't worship false gods. I don't offer any kind of animal to some kind of deity. We also have idols of our heart. Whatever it is that your life is oriented by, whatever you make space for in your life at the expense of others, whatever is your dominating principle and thought and motivation, what gets your energy and your greatest emotions stirred, that is your God. And what we have to confront ourselves and what the Lord's Supper demands of us and won't leave us alone about is look at your heart and remove the idols. Make room only for the Lord and sanctify him as Lord in our heart. But there's another message I want to look at. Uh, go over to chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. If you look down to 1 Corinthians 11, yes, in verses 23-26, through Paul reminds them of what the Lord did when he instituted the Lord's Supper. But look on down to verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Of course, we understand that what he means in verse 30 is some of you Christians at Corinth, you're weak spiritually, and you're dead spiritually. And the reason why? When you observe the new covenant in the Lord's Supper, you're not doing it in a way that's worthy of the Lord. I wonder how much of that might be true for any given congregation. What does it mean to eat or to drink in an unworthy manner? I think it could involve a couple of things. I think certainly if we partake when we have clearly, flagrantly broken our covenant with God, And we have just been comfortable in that and we've been at ease with that and then we think that we'll roll in here and do that because we do it every other week and then we go back to our lives and the Lord has not transformed us inwardly. We are eating and drinking damnation to ourselves because what we are saying to God is that your covenant and the blood of your son is worth less to me than the temptations that I'm choosing to indulge in throughout the week. And yes, there's judgment for that. And there's a sense in which fear and trembling should accompany us as we partake. Now, does that mean then that, well, I've sinned last week, and so I'm just not going to partake, all right? No, that is not the answer here. What that means then is that we should confront our sin, repent of it, ask for forgiveness, deal with it, and pray, and then come and partake in a worthy manner. But according to verse 29, I think there's another reason given that we might partake unworthily, and that is not discerning the Lord's body. Now, what it means to discern the Lord's body, surely it's not just, okay, I know this bread represents His body. It's unleavened bread, and I know what that represents. And here's the cup. That's the fruit of the vine. It looks like blood. It's, okay, I understand the symbolism there. Done. I've discerned the Lord's body. No, it goes even more deeply than that. Discerning the Lord's body is taking the emblems of the Lord's Supper. And it's making it personal. And what this takes me back to, discerning the Lord's body. Well, what was that body for? It reminds me, in the book of Leviticus, as you read those first several chapters about the sacrifices and the procedure for that. What we read there is that part of the sacrifice would involve the offerer, the one who has sinned and transgressed, brings the animal... And as part of this procedure, they lay their hands on the head of the animal. Have you ever just pictured that? Close your eyes and imagine what it would have been like for an Israelite to bring this animal up, and you lay your hand on its head. And what you feel beneath you is the hair or the wool, and you feel that there is warmth, and there's movement, and there's life, and there's innocence, and it's about to be dead because of me and that it should be me. I'm laying my hand on it to say, this should be me. But God is accepting this innocent blood instead of me. And what we are doing with the Lord's Supper, in a sense, all of us of all time, all of us who are in the spiritual, heavenly places with Christ, we in a sense, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we all unified lay our hands on the head of the Son of God. And He is the one that is our sacrificial lamb. Yes, we discern the Lord's body. And it means that this is personal. And that if God did not come to the earth for anyone else but for me, that's why I'm partaking. And that's why He did it. So what this means then, my brothers and sisters, is that the Lord's Supper truly is at the center of our dealings with God. It reminds us of His sacrifice by which we are forgiven. And because of that sacrifice, we enjoy a relationship with God. And like Judah of old, we have an opportunity every week to reflect upon our lives. And in a serious, formal way, we renew our covenant and our dedication to the Lord. What I'd like to do is go over to 1 Peter chapter 1 with you. And see what the Apostle has to say about what it is. Even though he doesn't mention the Lord's Supper here, certainly there's a reference to what it is that we are remembering on Sunday. Look in First Peter chapter 1. In verse 17, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God." In this scripture, we have two different valuations. We have on the one hand, our former conduct, received by tradition or the passing down from our fathers. That is to say, the way of humanity, how does he describe it? It's aimless. Meaning that this is the world of Ecclesiastes. It's vanity. And it's nothing but corrosive and decay. We've got that on the one hand, and on the other hand, the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and blemish. Now what does this have to do with about the Lord's Supper and repentance? What the Lord's Supper really asks us to do, if we will take a moment, and if we need to do it in that moment, You hold that cup, and you see that substance that so resembles blood, and you realize that this is from the lamb that took the stroke that was due all of us. And you look at that, and you know what that means, and then you see pictures and visions of yourself in the past, and the choices we've made, and the things of this world that we have chosen over that. And you look at that and you think, How, what am I doing? How can I do that? And think that? And make these choices? This blood is for me. It's not for those things. God did not send His Son on the cross for me to indulge in the passing pleasures of this life. That's not what it's all for. It's for this blood. And for me to be with Him for eternity. And so there, in that, is the powerful force of the Lord's Supper to bring and to call God's people back to repentance. And what that means then is that every Sunday when we partake, what we are to do is to remember throughout the rest of this week, don't forget that bread. Don't forget that blood. And we then are called upon to value that and to prize that and make that the centerpiece and orientation. And all of our lives are bound up in that. And we must live like It, it means something to us. So, what we do as we are starting to draw this service to a close, at least this period of study, we ask you that if you have thought about not only just this lesson, but the Lord's Supper, and if you realize that what it is that you put in your mouth and thought about and what that means, if that is not matching up with you, I mean the real you, not the you that's here necessarily, the real you, the real me. If that doesn't match up, it's time to do something about it. And if you think to yourself, well, there are a lot of things that I have to do. There are things in the future to take into account. There comes a point where you need to realize no matter what the future holds, no matter what repentance costs, what you need to understand is, I need to set all of that aside. And the only thing that is crucial and important for me right now is being right with my God. And what we call upon you to do is that if you will trust Him and trust the cross, take His nail-scarred hand, and whatever the future will look like, whatever the future will cost you, you can face it with Him. And that will be fine. And it will be okay. He faced it all for you and for me. Take His hand and be His child and walk with Him. And you will find that there are many others who are walking along with you. The Lord loves you and the Lord calls you. And if this afternoon then, we can witness then your turn back to the Lord, your confession and seeking His forgiveness, we will pray with you. And you will find many others who care about you and love you and will stand with you, whatever it takes. Because heaven gave us whatever it took. And if we can encourage you then by this song, we do so while we stand and while we sing together.